Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the meeting of this church family and this gathering together. I pray that uh, your word will have meaning for us and we'll be able to use it as we move forward in your name. Amen. So what can you do when you come to a crossroads? You need to make a decision that has four options, right? You can go straight ahead, you can go right or left, or you can turn around and go back. Three of those options essentially mean moving ahead and one does not. So this morning I want to talk about what the different or what difference that makes. And I want to I want to talk about a little history first and then I want to talk about how this applies to us and what it means in our lives. So on this Sunday, we find ourselves in the season of Advent. So what exactly does that mean? We know we have purple trappings on the altar and we wear purple stoles. We go about making Advent wreaths. We sing Christmas carols as part of the worship service. But mostly, we go about the process of preparing ourselves and our families for the Christmas holiday. We shop, we bake, we make plans for parties. We decorate trees, we decorate our houses, we open advent calendars, and we get ready to have visitors and company. But is that really the true meaning of advent? Advent is a very special time of year that often gets lost in the bright lights and the festivities of the Christmas season that it precedes. Advent is a Christian season of preparation for the celebration of the birth of Christ, number one, but it's also a looking forward to the second coming of Christ. It's also the beginning of the liturgical year for Western Christianity. The name was adopted from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And translated into Greek, it equates to perusia, which you might remember is the word used in the New Testament for the second coming. So spiritually, it's both a celebration of the early birth of Jesus but also a preparation and anticipation. Even the candles have their own special significance. Everybody know that? Four candles represent the four weeks of Advent, yes, and one candle is lit each Sunday. Three of the candles are purple because it's the liturgical color that signifies the time of prayer and penance and sacrifice. The central candle is the Christ candle, the light of the world that we will light on Christmas Eve. Now, traditionally, these candles are meant to symbolize the four stages of human history, creation, incarnation, the redemption of sins, and the final judgment. But more recently, they've come to symbolize faith, hope, love, and peace. Advent, then, is a season of preparation and looking forward. But for many, this time of year also becomes a time of reflection, of looking back of worrying about things done and things not done? Are we trusting and living in the hope and grace of God, or are we looking back and fretting over things gone by? The main theme of the book of Isaiah, the reading that we heard this morning, is to demonstrate the importance of hope and trusting in the Lord. Isaiah provides a template for the Messiah, 
the prophecy as he develops a profile of God's plan and the child who is to reign. However, to me, Isaiah also reminds us of God's penchant for using even the absolute worst of human behavior for his purpose and good. The first king whom Isaiah serves, Ahaz, does not trust the Lord. He ignores Isaiah's advice and follows his own schemes. And this leads to his defeat and slavery at the hands of the Assyrians. Ahaz's son Hezekiah, in contrast, does trust the Lord, and Jerusalem is ultimately delivered. As you might recall from our reading, the promised land was divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And the occasion of this prophecy was the invasion of Judah by the combined forces of the kings of Syria and Israel. And they first attacked separately, but then they joined forces and attacked together. And their object was to replace Ahaz with another king because they didn't like him. But instead of asking God for help, as Isaiah suggests, Ahaz appeals to the king of Assyria. Ahaz would rather put his trust in his worst enemy than in God. So he's crazy, right? That's what we would say. But how often do we also follow our own schemes and plans rather than trusting in the grace of God? So let's look back 2,000 years ago. We find the early Christian church at a crossroads and at the same time poised for an explosion. About 15 years have elapsed since the death of Jesus on the cross. It is approximately 47 AD and there is a lot going on within the church. At this time, there is no official church doctrine. There is no liturgy. None of the gospels have been written. In fact, none will be written for another 15 years. James the apostle, one of the sons of thunder, has already been martyred. Paul has been on the road for two years with his first missionary journey and fledgling churches are popping up all over Gentile territory. The leaders of the church are trying to find their identity and their way. How do they look forward to the expansion of the church? And they find the most critical decision now facing them. Are they reaching forward or are they looking back? This crucial moment represents the first real challenge to the gospel of grace. Would these early Christians fall back to their Jewish roots, laws and rituals, or move forward toward salvation through forgiveness and grace? Would they return to the belief that they could be saved only through good works, or trust that God's grace would save them for good works? For Paul and Barnabas, the answer was a simple one, but one that they would fight their entire careers. In Paul's mind, any return to the old Jewish ways represented a return to slavery, slavery under the law, a law that could never be completely complied with, and hence no one could ever be saved. By this time, under the auspices of the Pharisees, which remember Paul was one, they were the keepers and interpreters of the law. The original 10 laws of God, the laws of Moses, have now grown to 613 impossible and sometimes ridiculous laws. For, for example, you are not allowed to carry a needle in your pocket 
on the Sabbath. That was one of the laws. To Paul, it meant that Christ would have died for nothing, and there could be no looking forward, no hope. Many of the early Christians still went to temple and attended Jewish festivals and feasts and tried to obey the 613 laws. And they fervently contended that the new pagan and Gentile Christians that Paul and Barnabas were converting first needed to become Jews in order to be a Christian. And that meant that new converts needed to be circumcised and observe the 613 laws. They were all looking back. Many of the new Gentile members were confused by all these requirements. And Paul and Barnabas were irate that their gospel was being undermined. Was the church reaching forward or was it looking back? Was it outward bound or not? Before the gospel of grace could move forward, clarification was needed. And it needed to come from the leadership of the church. And as we know, Paul and Barnabas are chosen to go to Jerusalem and meet with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and John at what would be called the Jerusalem Council. And after an oratory by Peter, the leaders agree that it is unfair to place these burdens of the Jewish laws and customs on the new members of the church. And they further agree that if God has seen fit to give the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, without discrimination or initiation requirements, who are they to test God? So let's look at what Peter says about that. God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear? No. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. And there it was. The path forward had been chosen. The gospel of grace had won over race and ritual. God's grace and forgiveness provided through the sacrifice of Jesus was all we needed for salvation. Paul and Barnabas were given a position statement that they could use it was the first rudimentary and written church doctrine. But beyond that, and most importantly, the church pillars were agreeing with Paul that our justification was to come only by grace through faith in Christ. There was nothing that we could do to earn it, no matter how many laws we obeyed. Their church was reaching and racing ahead, not without hiccups, but it was reaching ahead, and it was outward bound in the grace of God. So in this Advent season, are we, you and me, reaching ahead or are we looking back? Ready for this? Objects in the rear view mirror may appear closer than they are. Objects in the rear view mirror may appear closer than they are. Anybody? <laughs> huh? Anybody know who wrote those lyrics? A great American balladeer, Meatloaf. We often equate something that is in the rearview mirror 
as something that is over and done with. It's in the past and forgotten. But do we really act that way? How often do we find ourselves at the same kind of crossroads as the early church, looking back instead of ahead? Not only at Advent, but in our everyday lives. If you try driving a car by looking in the rearview mirror, how as well is that going to go? Not too good, right? We can find our ability to move ahead with the work that God has intended for us stifled because we're too busy worrying or focused on things in our past. I have fallen into that trap many times. So anyway, thinking about that song reminded me of a car-related story that really has nothing to do with this sermon. <laughs> but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's cool and a little creepy. So I fly to Fort Lauderdale on a business trip one time, and after landing there, I drive past Miami down to Homestead, Florida, to visit with the Park Service. And after my meeting, I'm driving back to Fort Lauderdale to catch a plane home the exact same way that I drove down, only in reverse. But I have my GPS on, just in case I have a brain cramp on the way. And all the way back, I'm playing leapfrog with a white van. And you all know how that goes, right? You pass the van, the van passes you, you pass the van, the van passes you, and that goes on forever because the van doesn't use cruise control. <laughs> so it's a, it's a constant back and forth. As I get closer to Miami and the roads and traffic get crazier, my GPS starts chirping at me. In three miles, exit to the right at exit so-and-so. You know, well, I know that that's not right because I just came this way a few hours ago and I didn't get off at exit so-and-so. So I try to ignore it, but the closer I get to Miami, the more it's chirping in my ear. Every few tenths of a mile, I'm getting the same message. Exit to the right at exit so-and-so. And now the traffic's really crazy because I'm close to Miami and I'm still playing tag with this van in the meantime and I'm starting to second guess myself even though I know it's not right and I just want to say shut up so finally I get to the exit so-and-so and the GPS is yelling at me to get off and there are like a million roads going all different directions over me under me all over the place going this way and that and I finally say the heck with it and I get off so now I'm on an exit ramp, headed down onto a six-lane surface road, and I hear, when available, make a U-turn. <laughs> I won't tell you what I said then, or the creative names I called my GPS, but of course, I knew that it wanted me to turn around and get back on the interstate, and I was now stuck in the intersection from hell. Eventually, I was able to turn around and get back on the on-ramp of the interstate again, only to find now that the interstate was all jammed up and I couldn't even get up the ramp. When I finally made it up and got back on, there was the white van, <laughs> wiped out in a three-car accident. So all I could say was, thank you, Lord. And that got me thinking about how often we spend our time and efforts looking in the rearview mirror instead of reaching ahead. Like the early church, we can find ourselves at a crossroads, hampered by the past 
and unwilling to risk reaching forward? How often do we dwell on and worry about the past and think about it with regret? How often are we filled with thoughts of, if only, if only I had done this, or if only I hadn't done that? People spend their lives running from regrets and hiding from the shame of the past. They are manipulated by memories, but we don't have to be. In the words of Pastor Rick Warren, we are products of our past, but we don't have to be prisoners of it. Think about some of the people that God has chosen for his purpose. You can find murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, conspirators, thieves, the disobedient, cowards. Sound like great people, right? Seems that in some cases, failure may actually be a better teacher than success. But God didn't worry about their past or their failures. He only worried about what he needed them to do. Paul once called himself the chief of sinners for his relentless and vicious persecution of Christians. Luke described Paul in the book of Acts as breathing threats and murder towards Christians. The man who would become the greatest of the apostles sent many to their deaths. He imprisoned countless and consented to the illegal stoning of Stephen. It didn't stop him from answering God's call. Why? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. Paul realized that God had already forgiven his past and that he had work for him to do. Remember that Paul was a Jew and a Pharisee, and he knew what the law was and its importance. And he never said to disregard the law, just the opposite. He continually preached about living a godly life in accordance with the law that God had provided. However, with the sacrifice of Jesus, the law and obedience to it simply were no longer the way to salvation. Paul goes on to tell us that we are all going to fall short in the eyes of God. And of course, in our hearts, we all know that. And God knows that. He expects it. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Throughout this journey, we are going to stumble. And as Paul said, fall short. But God's love and grace will always be with us no matter what. So that's great news, right? We mess up, and because of Christ's sacrifice, God forgives us. When Paul preached that concept to the early church, the first thing they said was, all right, now we can sin as much as we want. Uh, no. Grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card with an automatic pardon for anything we choose to do. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as cheap grace. God still expects us to learn and to become better. His goal is to bit by bit transform us into the likeness of Jesus. That's right. God doesn't want you to waste your past. He wants you to use it and to learn from it, but not fixate on it. The past is done. There is nothing you can do to change it. It's over. If you are too busy fretting about the past, you cannot be about the things that God has in store for you to do. 
We might never know the people that we have inspired or impacted along the way. Maybe that's a good thing, because if we knew it, we might mess it up. Heroes don't always know they're going to do something heroic, and history isn't always recognized in the moment that it happens. The next hero could be looking back at you from the mirror in the morning. Give God the chance to use you. In Ephesians, Paul says, God has made us what we are. He has created us in Christ Jesus to live lives filled with good works that he has prepared for us to do. I'd like to remember a line from a movie I saw. It was unfortunately the worst movie ever made and two hours of my life that I will never get back. But then again, when you walk into a theater to see a movie entitled Cowboys and Aliens, what can you realistically expect? You take cowboys, who everyone loves, right? And you mix in aliens. What could be better than that? Turns out just about anything. If you haven't seen it, don't. But I'll give you the thumbnail sketch spoiler alert. The movie takes place in 1873. And get this, the town of Absolution. Aliens come to Earth and they are abducting humans with, yes, you heard it here, giant space lassos. And they're not really here to abduct humans. They're just doing it for fun because, well, they can. And what they are really after is gold, which they need for fuel for some reason. So they have this giant mining machine out in the desert. Anyway, the locals get pretty torqued about these guys grabbing up their friends. So the two main characters, a nasty cowboy guy named Ford, interestingly played by Harrison Ford, and a handsome mystery loner who just appears. And they finally get fed up with these giant green drooling snorting monsters using an alien death ray to torch their cattle. I was thinking barbecue, but no. Again, just for fun. Anyway, Ford and the mystery heartthrob gather up a bunch of cowboys and a bunch of Indians and an outlaw gang to do battle with the ETs. So now we have six shooters, bows and arrows, and horses going to war with an alien race, flying ten-winged dragonflies, and with enough technology to come from another galaxy. And for some reason, the aliens seem to enjoy being mowed down by the six shooters and arrows. At any rate, at some point during the various battles, the old town preacher gets zapped. And he's, he lays dying, the loner finds him. And he wants to talk about God and confess for all the lousy things he's done his whole life. He is convinced that God hates him and that his past is so terrible, there is no way heaven would ever have him. So now comes the line that you've all been waiting for. And as the only redeeming scene of the entire movie, the preacher says to the loner, God doesn't care who you were, son. He only cares who you are. God doesn't care who you were. He only cares who you are. I love that line. It gives me so much comfort and peace, and it fills me with hope. All of our past, both good and bad, has molded us into the people that we are today. 
the life experiences that God sets in front of us that he uses to make us who we are. He uses all our past experience, both good and bad, to shape us, getting us ready for the work he has for us to do. We tend to hold on to the hurts. Instead of releasing the pain through forgiveness or trusting in God, we replay it over and over again in our minds, feeling hurt. Those who hurt us in the past or the things that we regret or are embarrassed by can only continue to hold us back if we hold on to them. If we truly believe in God's forgiveness and grace, we need to let them go. Some terrible things have happened to me in my lifetime. Things that I don't like to think about and that made me incredibly angry when I did think about them. But now, seeing where those things have led me, I am also incredibly grateful. Without those terrible things, I probably wouldn't live in Charleston right now or be part of this church family. I most likely wouldn't have the relationship with the Lord that I do. I don't think my marriage would be as strong as it is. I didn't understand for a long time. But now I do. I can see how God has transformed me. In the words of the philosopher Kierkegaard, life can only be understood backward, but unfortunately it must be lived forward. Faith always requires risk. It means that you will obey even when you don't understand why. Remember when you were a kid, your parents told you to do something? You might have said, why? And they probably said, because I told you to. Years later, when you were grown and maybe had your own kids, you could look back and understand. Our relationship with God is the same way. He alone knows why he asks you to do things. We just have to trust. God knows how his dream for your life fits into the bigger plan he has for the world and how you fit. Only he knows why certain people are put in our paths or the work that we will do for him. In the words of Joliet Jake and Elwood Blues, we're on a mission from God. <laughs> God has a better way for you to discover the next steps in his path for you and how to navigate that crossroad. He wants you to take a close look at your past and help you move into your future. God might show you things in your past you can celebrate and be proud of once you understand why. Does living in God's grace mean there won't be struggles and valleys? Of course not. There will always be valleys, some bigger, some smaller. The difference comes in how we handle them. Do we struggle ahead with our own great scheme, like Ahaz, saying, I can handle this? Or do we accept the free gifts we are given and lay our burdens at the foot of the cross? Rick Warren says, when God's grace meets you in the deepest, darkest places of your life, you realize that nothing, no problem, no crisis, no hurt, can devastate your life. You know that you can handle anything with God's help. Grace flies in the face of our human concept of fairness. We think good people should get the good stuff, and bad people should get the bad stuff. But the gospel tells us that bad people get the good stuff too. And guess what? We're all bad people. If God were fair, we would all go to hell. So lucky for us, he is gracious and merciful and loves us unconditionally. 
Did you notice the subtle but important play on words in the lyrics I sort of sang before? Meatloaf says objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are. But the actual words on a rearview mirror are objects may be closer than they appear. Did you catch it? Those things in our past, those things that tend to move us away or alienate us from God, those things that we dredge up and keep close to us, Meatloaf tells us are really far, far away and getting farther every day. They're just waiting for us to let go and let them fade away. We need to be careful not to be restrained by regret and guilt. With the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, we need to worry about our past for about five seconds. It's just something that happened. Get over it. God has already forgiven you. Now it's time to forgive yourself. Baseball legend Satchel Paige is credited with the saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. Don't be defined by what you did or didn't do. Reach forward. We can't change the past, but we can indeed learn from it. The past won't hurt you unless you allow it to. Now listen to this. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, take this. God's purpose for you is not limited by your past. He turned a murderer named Moses into a great leader. He turned a philandering, conniving killer named David into a great king and hero. And he turned a Pharisee named Saul, who hated Christians and persecuted them, breathing threats and murder, into his greatest apostle. Just think what he can do with your life. So how important is grace? I'll give you a hint. It's everything. Through grace, we are given spiritual gifts to work for God. We are forgiven. We can look forward with hope, and we are saved. With the gospel of grace, the church was outward bound and continues to grow in accordance with God's plan. We need to as well. God has forgiven our past. Jesus bought that forgiveness for us. Accept that greatest of all Christmas gifts gladly and gratefully. Be a child of God. Accept his grace. Forgive yourself. Listen to him and let the Spirit lead you. Like Paul, let's press on toward the goal for which God has called us. God doesn't care who you were. He only cares who you are. Amen.